but I do. My name is Mike. Uh, I've been around here for a long time, and um, yeah, I'm going to be your sermonator this evening. Speaking of uh, kids, um, I, I just had my firstborn's 37th birthday party, and um, it got me to thinking about all the things that I'm not doing <laughs> that all of you young parents are, and uh, thinking about the whole job of what it means to be a parent. I mean, it really means just, it doesn't mean just helping your kids to become mature. Isn't that your job? I remember uh, when we brought Katina home from the hospital, our very first kid, we, we kind of laid her down there uh, on the floor, and we said, we know that from time to time you're going to get hungry. Um, the fridge is in the kitchen. We put everything on the bottom shelf so it will be easily accessible to you. Um, and you're going to need to go to the bathroom. is just down the hallway. It'll be fine. No, no, we didn't do that, Right. Now, when, when, when babies come home from the hospital, you have to do everything for them. I mean, they can produce snot on their own, pee and poop, and that's about it, it seems. Um, and so you do everything for them, right? And, of course, um, if mom is breastfeeding, it's really easy uh, to feed them for a while. But then comes the time when you've got to help them mature into regular food, right? Baby food. I mean, going from sweet, warm, cuddly mother's milk to world peas is a big deal, really, in a kid's life. And I remember, you know, the first time, you know, giving our, our children the baby food, you know, <laughs> You stick the spoon in their mouth, and then it'd be like just a second later, you'd go, bleh, and then it would just come out. And you'd scoop it up off their face and off the tray, and you'd say, no, you're going to have this now. And you put it back in their mouth, and they go, bleh, and until they get hungry enough, they finally eat it, right? Because you know they can't keep nursing their entire lives. They've got to move on. And they become toddlers, and you teach them how to walk, and that's always fun, right? Usually there's a couple marks in the forehead from where they've hit something. And I talked, I think, just a couple weeks ago about scooping them up and helping them walk again. And then you know that they need to do other things besides just play. So you try and get them to read and to study, to go outside and play, not just play video games inside, because that's not always healthy if you want to mature as a person. And then get a little bit older, and then you got to teach them to learn from others, teachers, you know, at school. And then also there's things you don't need to learn from teachers. You don't need to accept that stuff. Teachers are, are trying to put in front of you all the time. And this is how you tell whether the teacher's really full of BS or not. And then there's other kids at school who are telling them things about themselves. And you've got to help them sift through, okay, that's not legitimate. 
If you listen to that voice, it'll take you down the wrong path. It'll take you down to despair. Listen to me. Listen to what I say about you. Listen to when I say what you're capable of. Because I love you. He teaches them that some boys and girls are out to use them. Even worse, to use them for their own evil desires. And that's a really hard time when you're raising a kid to let them know the world isn't safe. You teach them to rely on your family, assuming you've got a good family. And then teaching them to support their brothers and sisters when they naturally want to fight and take things from their brothers and sisters. I never had to teach my children to be selfish at home. I had to teach them how to share. We had to teach them how to love each other. And so we've been going through the book of Ephesians and uh, Last week, Larry did part one of uh, Apostles, Prophets, Evangelists, Pastors, and Teachers, the Funkalicious Teaching, and so I'm just doing part two. Going to the same passage that Larry went over last week. I'm going to take a little different focus than Larry did last week. So I highly recommend you going to the podcast, listening to that after, if you didn't catch it last week. So, we're going to go... And we're going to see what the Apostle Paul is trying to get into the heads and the hearts of the young Christians who are in the churches of Ephesus and the surrounding areas. Okay? Ephesians 4, starting in verse 11 through 16. I'm going to read all the way through it. You can see it up there. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Verse 14. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of Him who is the head, that is Christ. From Him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. All right, now we're going to go through it a little bit slower and take it bit by bit. So verse 11. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers. Now, unfortunately, um, I think the church has used these gifts to divide us rather than to unite us Oftentimes, maturity in the body of Christ is a stable unity. And, and this all comes from instruction, 
from the preaching of the Word, from dealing with the Word of God. And that's what these five gifts to the church do, is they deal in the Word. The gifts that Christ gives the church in apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers are to promote serving and to building up. This doesn't set up some kind of hierarchy of clergy. Rather, it's talking about the diversity of the body and how God has given us different kinds of people to assist us in becoming one. I think it's dangerous on the flip side when you just grab a title and claim it for yourself. Well, I'm a teacher. That's what I am. Because you don't know, frankly, how long God wants you to be a teacher in the body of Christ. He may have you move around a bit. Besides that, we shouldn't take too much identity in these gifts because they're not going to last forever. An old, old Christian father, Theodoret, said, In the future we shall attain perfection, but in the present life we need all the help we can get from the apostles, the prophets, and our teachers. In other words, in the future, in heaven, we're not going to need apostles. We're not going to need prophets. We're not going to need evangelists. We're not going to need pastors and teachers. Why? Because we're all going to know Jesus one-on-one. And together as a group. You won't need to preach to one another. So don't take too much pride if you've got one of these gifts. And these categories aren't mutually exclusive. Theoretically, I think all of them could be attributed to the Apostle Paul. He was all of them at one point or another. I'd like to say, in my opinion, I think the recently departed... Reverend Billy Graham was all of them. He left behind ministries, many ministries, not just the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, Christianity Today. The magazine that's going on for decades is one of those ministries. There's movie-making ministries. There's all sorts of things that come out of what he built. So in that sense, you could say he was apostolic. He left in his wake, as Larry said last week, he left in his wake... Ministries. He was a prophet. He spoke to power. He was not afraid when he was convinced of something to talk to people and tell them what was right and what was wrong, what was good and what was bad. He was prophetic in that way. He took the Word of God, he applied it to our present day situation. One of the very first church people I know to integrate racially, his evangelistic crusades. He made sure there were white people and black people and brown people and yellow people and purple people all together on the stage, in the stands. He was prophetic. Obviously an evangelist. I don't need to go there. guy preached to more people, I think, than anybody in the history of the world about Jesus. And people came to Christ in droves. Pastor and teacher, I mean, how many books did he publish? For crying out loud, he went into depth talking about things that he would never talk about in his crusades. 
So these are not exclusive to one person, his or her whole life. Sometimes you can be all sorts of these varying times in your life. And there are more than... Are there more than five jobs? Well, if you look through the rest of the Bible in 1 Corinthians, you get the impression there are more gifts than these. You don't have to be just one of these. The body can't function without worshipers, musicians, administrators, helpers, healers, counselors. You can't. There's all sorts of gifts. And all these gifts are a byproduct of a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what He does. He gives us these people as gifts to help us mature and to grow up. All right. Now stay on that other one. I'm going to concentrate more on pastors and teachers today, FYI. Pastors are teachers, but teachers are not always pastors. Pastors are teachers, but teachers are not always pastors. I mean, you can go to a seminary class, and you can learn a lot of great stuff that you need to know. That doesn't mean your professor is going to get involved in your life and lead you as a shepherd leads sheep. Because pastor means shepherd. That's what it means. But a pastor is always a teacher. Always. As a matter of fact, in the Greek, in this passage, they share the same article, the pastors and teachers. It seems like they meant to go together. Almost indistinguishable. I think a pastor is something you are. We have a lot of pastors here at Scum of the Earth. One of the most obvious is Steve Bernardo. I don't know if you know Steve, but if you get to know him at all, Steve is a shepherd. He's always taking care of people. He's taking care of them when they're down and out, when they're in their worst places. He gets calls at 3 in the morning. He leaves his phone on. He's a better pastor than me. I turn my phone off. Jesse Girl is an amazing pastor. She walks with people in their joys and in their sorrows. I'm a pastor. I'm a pastor probably more than I'm just about anything else. One of my friends said about me something I really didn't like. Because I wanted to, uh, I wanted to be a speaker, you know. I wanted to start getting invited, be on the circuit, and, you know, get paid to talk to people. And he says, well, Mike, I don't know. He goes, you know, people don't really say... I got a chance to hear Mike Sears talk. What they say is, I got a chance to spend some time with Mike Sears. Remember Reese Roper telling me, stop talking like you were a pastor at my mom's church. Stop it. 
Just be Mike. Be the guy that we sit down and have coffee with. That's who you should be when you're up in front of the church. I've been a pastor my whole life. When I was a salesman for many years, I realized I pastored my customers. I knew what was going on in their lives. I knew when their kids were sick. I knew when they were having trouble at home in their marriage. I knew when the business was rocky. I knew about their friendships. And I would ask every time I came back around, how's this? How's that? I got more free stuff. Remember my manager going out with me and him saying, Sears, do people always give you stuff for free? Like the baker would give me a loaf of bread. And the cheesecake maker would give me a cheesecake. I would go to the women's clothing shop and she would give me like an outfit for my wife at cost. And he's going, what is going on? Well, it's just that pastoral relationship that I had. So pastors and teachers have a responsibility of leading people like a shepherd leads sheep. A shepherd leads sheep to safe places to drink. Good pastures where they can graze. A shepherd protects sheep from wolves and other wild animals. A good pastor will go and rescue a sheep who's caught on a rocky cliff and can't get down or caught in a briar patch and can't get out. A good shepherd will look for parasites and take them off of his flock. That's what a good Shepherd does. A pastor does the same kind of thing. Just so you know, I have a pastor. I've always had a pastor since I was pastor at Scum. I would not trust a pastor who didn't have a pastor. So if you leave Scum, don't you dare go to a church where the pastor doesn't have a pastor. This is me being a shepherd right now. Now, one of the things that pastors and teachers do is they don't take care of you just so you can feel good. They do that, but that's not the only thing. They do that so you can help other people make it. There's a great cost, I think, in fulfilling any one of these offices of the church. You've got to be postured right. You've got to flee your own sin nature if God puts you in one of these positions. You've got to put the body first sometimes over your own selfish desires. You've got to throw away your rights all the time. And the motivation has to be love. You do it because you love people. This is heartbreaking work. Let me just say it's heartbreaking work. I'm a pastor. I like to gather the flock. I like to keep us all in the same fold, safe, with good relationships. You have no idea how much it hurts me when people leave. They can leave for really good reasons. I got a job in New York City. 
I'm getting married to a girl who lives in Albuquerque. I don't care. It hurts. Why does it hurt? Because I'm a pastor. I want everybody to be together. I want us all to get along. It's like at the family dinner table when my daughter had her birthday. It was wonderful to have them all sitting down at the same table having a good time. You can't be motivated by greatness because, frankly, you know, it's not... (laughs) I'm sorry. It's just not a really big head trip. Um, You don't get paid much. And uh, most people in the world think you're wasting your life away. (laughs) I mean, pastors don't get no respect. At least not anymore. Being a good pastor is sacrificial, turning the other cheek. And uh, really, you get your kudos from God. Now, I want to take a little bit of an excursus um, and talk about gifts because people get hung up on, well, if I'm not one of those five, then what am I? Um, Next slide. There's all kinds of different gifts in the New Testament, okay? Um, The basic gift, the Greek word charisma, is eternal life in Christ. And all the other exists, all the other gifts exist because of this one. That's the big gift. That's the that's the winner right there. The gift of eternal life in Jesus. Number two, the Holy Spirit is often referred to as a gift given to every Christian. You have the Holy Spirit living inside you. God gave it to you. Number three, your own station in life is a gift. Now, in 1 Corinthians 7, he's talking about either marriage or celibacy. Marriage or singleness. He said, okay, so if you're single, it's a gift. If you're married, it's a gift. I know married people who wish they were single. I know single people who wish they were married. My guess is they're not looking at it as a gift. But it is a gift. Your station in life is a gift, according to the Bible. That's a whole other sermon. I'm not going to go there. Number four, ministry is viewed as a gift. We've been talking about that here in Ephesians. Number five, people are gifts. As in apostles, prophets, teachers, Larry brought that up last week. People are gifts for the church. And then number six, various activities are gifts, such as those in 1 Corinthians 12. Miracles, healings, gifts of helping, gifts of guidance, gifts of different kinds of tongues that are given. These are all gifts, okay? So I just don't want you to think that these are the only gifts, the five that we're talking about, okay? All right. Spiritual spiritual gifts are part of you, but they are not you. You're not going to need them in heaven, as I said before. I think we we would do well to, to care less about identifying our gifts and be more concerned about becoming a gift. I think we should spend less time trying to identify our gifts and spend more time just trying to become a gift to other people because that's how the Spirit functions. All in all, what this says is you can't 
be a mature Christian all by yourself. You just can't. You can't get everything you need. It's impossible to grow up or be mature in isolation. All right, let's go on to verse 12. To equip his people for works of service so the body of Christ might be built up. Now, interesting thing here, the word to equip, sometimes uh, they say to prepare his people for works of service. The Greek word is karatatismo, uh, uh, and, and really, uh, it has this kind of connotation of, um, well, it's used other places to, to set a broken bone. So, to equip his people is like a, it's like a, a healing thing, to set a broken bone. Or, uh, for example, in Matthew, it's, it's used in terms of the mending of nets. So, so... It's a mending. Um, yeah. Other places is just... Okay. It might mean completing what is already good. I mean, you're on the good, good path. It just means we're going to keep going that way. Remember I said uh, a couple weeks ago that unity in the body is a given. Jesus gives us unity. We just have to keep it going. So I think what these gifts are supposed to do, apostles, prophets, teachers, etc., evangelists, what we're supposed to do is they're supposed to kind of keep mending, keep, keep it going, keep, keep resetting the bones that are broken, keep it going. And then we're supposed to do this so people can go off and do ministry. It's about unleashing the church to do what it's meant to do. It's not just for you. Pastors and teachers and the rest are not there just so you can have a better marriage. They're not just there so you can have a better time at work. What they're there for is so you can do all that and then be a blessing to other people. Do whatever it is God has you to do out in the world. Larry said last week that, you know, the problem sometimes is like, like, like 20% of the people in a church are doing 80% of the work, Right? And I think it's that way because it's supposed to be that way. We don't need 100% of the people doing 100% of the work in the church. 20% of the people can handle it quite well. Thank you very much. The other 80% are supposed to be doing something else outside the church, (coughs) on the border, on the perimeter of the kingdom of God, helping other people find redemption in Jesus. The reason that we're here talking to you week after week in Bible studies and things like that is to help you remember whatever it is God has called you to do where God has called you to do it. So if you're not one of the 20% who are working their butts off at scum of the earth, praise God, that means you're one of the 80% that's supposed to go out and do something. Let me tell you something. The Inner City Health Clinic, which is a low-cost health care facility, over here, up in Five Points area, was started by Christians who were not pastors. They were not staff at a church. They were in a church that thought, we got to unleash our people to go do stuff. Mile High Ministries. 
They have Joshua Station over there on I-25, that, that low-cost place for people to live, started by people who weren't on staff. A lot of great work is done by people who are not on staff at churches. You guys need to be unleashed to go off and do whatever it is God wants you to do. Praise God. Praise God for the people who take Jesus with them wherever they go. I don't care if it's the soccer field. I don't care if it's the coffee shop. I don't care if it's the roller derby team. It doesn't matter. You're taking Jesus. And our job is to remind you to keep going. To get you ready to prepare and equip you for works of service that God wants you to do. You know, and one of the things that I'm here to do as a pastor teacher is to prevent you from getting taken advantage of. Let's go to verse 13 and 14. Until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Remember I told you that one of the jobs of the parent is to alert the children to people who are going to try and take advantage of them as they get older. Paul wants his readers to become mature so they won't be carried away by bad, heretical, erroneous teaching. Blown here and there. The Greek literally is like swung around. It's used as spinning tops and feeling dizzy. This is the confusing effect of false doctrine. Seriously, if some of your friends ever go to a church where doctrine is not being taught well, they're going to come out confused. They're not going to know which end is up. Really, I, I don't know. It's like, well, you know, the pastor said that... that, that, that Maybe Jesus really wasn't sure of what his, um, his mission was on earth. You know, when, and at Easter time, when he, when he called out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Like he was just doubting a lot. Or, or I went to this church and, and they said, Oh, well, you know, you can be a Christian and a Buddhist at the same time. See, just confusing. Buddhism is an atheistic religion, folks. Christianity is a theistic religion. You can't be both. And if anybody is a teacher, you can do that. They're wrong. The words here that Paul uses, I mean, he uses words that, that, that are like that, what they would use in Greek for, for people who are cheating at, at dice. cunning craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. 
There are false apostles. There are false prophets. There are false evangelists. There are false pastors. And there are false teachers. And they're out there. And they want to get you. And they want to use you. And they want to manipulate you. And they want to take your money. They want you to work for them. Not for Jesus. Be careful. Jesus wants us to be mature, not infants. He wants us to be held together, not tossed around back and forth. He wants us to speak the truth and not be deceived. He wants us to look to Him for who we are and what to do, not to look to other people for that. He wants us to be aware. There are people who would like us to serve them and not love each other. So listen to me. I'm doing my best to point you in the right direction. I have had people not take my warnings seriously. Not take the warnings of staff seriously. Not take the warnings of their brothers and sisters in the Bible study seriously. And they've gotten into great, great trouble spiritually. Be a student of the Word. Listen. Pastors and teachers are there to help you figure out what's important and what's not. Because let me tell you something. When you don't know what's important, everything is important. When you don't know what's important, everything is important. But a good pastor teacher will tell you to major in the majors and to minor in the minors. The church has split over if there is a rapture coming or not. I'm not going to go into what it is. If you don't know what it is, talk to me later. But the church is divided on that. The church is divided over the charismatic gifts, whether they're for today or just for back when the apostles were walking around. Their church is split over baptism. Should we do infant baptism or adult baptism? There were churches actually murdering each other over this in Switzerland back in the 1500s. We're divided over the apocalypse and when the world's going to end and how the world's going to end. A good pastor teacher will help you major in the majors and minor in the minors. That stuff is minor. What's major is Jesus is Lord. What's major is the Word of God. The Bible is inspired. It's what we need. It's the manual for living. It's not some outdated document you can pick and choose. You've got to study it hard. A good pastor teacher doesn't care so much about the size of the church, but cares about the quality of the people who are in it, whether they're going from infants to maturity.
Numerical growth is a secondary concern. A young man came to London, England, and wanted to talk to Pastor Charles Spurgeon one time. It was the mid-1800s. Spurgeon had what could be considered the first megachurch in that city. His sanctuary sat 5,000 people and had room for 1,000 more to stand. The young man approached him and said, Sir, I'm a pastor. I've got a complaint. My congregation is too small. Spurgeon said, Well, perhaps they are as large as you'd like to give an account for on Judgment Day. It's a pretty good answer. A true pastor is not responsible for how many people are coming to the church. He or she is responsible for how mature that congregation is. I mean, scum of the earth has been 350, 400 people at times in the past. We started with maybe a dozen or two. We were bigger two years ago than we are now. I don't care. I don't care. Thank you for being here. But you are just as important to me as if this church were three times the size. I don't care. What I'm here for, what we're all here for together is to build each other up. Let's go to the next verse. Verse 15. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of Him who is the head, that is Christ. Truth here is actually a verb, just so you know. A literal translation of the Greek would be, we are truthing in love. <laughs> and instead, speaking and truthing in love. It's what we do. Truth and love. You can't just major in love. You major in love, sometimes you don't tell the truth. You can't just major in truth, because sometimes you just major in truth. You're not loving people very well. Speaking the truth in love is a way to identify with the cross because it's costly sometimes to tell the truth. It's costly sometimes to tell the truth. I remember when I worked in the steel mill. I'd been there, I don't remember, for a month or two. And the head of the human resources department pulled me into his office because he knew I had been a teacher before, had left teaching to come and work in the steel mill. And... Um, he said, so what do you think? I said, well, I like the guys I work with. I think we could work harder. He goes, what? I said, well, you know, I'm just not used to taking breaks longer than we're supposed to. And it's difficult when I want to go back out to work and everybody else wants to stay in the break room. How do you think that went over when word got back to my shift manager and the rest of the guys I worked with. Holy moly. I thought they were going to slash my tires. They gave me the worst jobs in the mill. 
I mean, I would blow my nose and it would just be black gunk for like hours after I finished my shift. People may lose their jobs if they speak to truth. Evil people may resort to violence in your life if you tell the truth. What do you think happens when you out a physical abuser or a sexual abuser? What do you think happens to you? You may have to pay a price for being truthful. Speaking in love is a way to identify with the cross. And all this is to grow us up. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of Him who is the head, that is the Christ. In other words, Jesus is the head of the church. Jesus is not an infant. Jesus is fully mature and perfect. He's waiting for His body to catch up. Next slide. So this image came to my mind and I made it up in Photoshop. I thought, oh, this is what He's talking about. Jesus is waiting for His body to catch up with Him. Paul wants the body of Christ to catch up with the head. Who is Jesus? This is a pathetic photo. I realized today, after I made it, it's a good thing I'm the founder and I'm the staff of this church because any other church would fire me if I put that up on the slides. But here's the deal. Because I'm a teacher. And because I love you. You will never forget Ephesians 4.15 the rest of your life. Will you? I just took that picture, nailed it to the inside of your brain, and bent the nail. Let's go to verse 16. From Him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Every supporting ligament. That's the best they could do. Really, in a few words, to convey what it is Paul is saying. The word in Greek usually carries the idea of supply, not just supporting. Supplying, provisioning. And the word ligament really means connection. So it's more like the phrase should read, every contact for provision. In other words, All of us in the body of Christ, every one of us is knit together with every other one of us to supply to the body what it needs to grow and mature. You see, it's all of our responsibility to turn that baby's body into a full-grown human body. The one body, the body of Jesus. 
And the question you got to ask yourself when you go to a new church is, is this pastor, is this leader trying to support this kind of united growth of the whole church together or just trying to promote his or her own agenda? His or her own television ministry. His or her own radio ministry. His or her own network of churches. Is that pastor looking to fill up the whole body and make it mature? All the gifts the Lord gives in the body of Christ are to produce maturity and unity. I'm going to close with a story about two really really obstinate and stuck in their ways and perhaps even disobedient pastors. Several years ago, I had the pleasure of going with my family to Kansas City to a Catholic church to watch my godson, my nephew, get married. Now, it just so happened I could be a godfather in a Catholic church because the priest at the time, back in Indianapolis, Indiana, where the baptism took place, didn't care or didn't ask if I was a bona fide Catholic or not. But I believed in Jesus. His parents knew I believed in Jesus. And they asked me to be the godfather for my nephew. And so, Mary and I became the godparents for, for Joe. Now, years and years later, Joe is getting married in Kansas City, and I'm invited with my family. So we go to the church. It's a huge church. There's all these young people there. It's a really vibrant Catholic student ministry there called Focus Fellowship of Catholic University Students. And so the church was full. We were in the back. And there was this old priest in the front doing the wedding. And um, <clears throat> conservative guy. And so before it came time for communion, he said, okay, anybody here who's Catholic is welcome to come and take communion. But if you're not Catholic, you can't come and take communion. Just come, cross your hands over your chest, and we'll give you a blessing. And I was offended. I thought, dude, I dispense communion at my church. I'm this kid's godfather. What do you mean I can't come and take part in the body and blood of our Lord? Like, what are you doing? I was so angry. I just sat there. And I thought, okay, fine. I'm just going to sit here. I'm not going to get up. I'm going to sit here in silent protest, and then everybody else can go up. But I am not participating in this stupidity. And then, because <clears throat> we were in the back, everybody else was going up to get communion. I had time, and the Holy Spirit started knocking on my brain, saying, so... Sayers, you're going to sit here and protest, huh? Yes, I am. 
You're going to do this in front of the whole family, all of Mary's extended family. You're going to do this. Yes, I am. Hmm. You know, your sons are sitting next to you. They're not going to be able to take communion either. They'll do whatever you do. Is this the kind of model you want to portray for your sons? This kind of obstinate behavior? This kind of pride and arrogance? You refuse to humble yourself and go up there and get a blessing. Um, well, I don't know. You put it that way. Okay, fine. I'll go up. And so, came time for our row to go up and take communion. I tell my sons, just do what I do. Now, Mary, being raised Catholic, baptized Catholic, 16 years of Catholic schooling, Mary takes communion. But I have to cross my arms over my chest. And so this old codger reaches out his hands and he just does this generic blessing from the Old Testament, from Numbers. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you. And and it was like lightning was going through His fingers into my shoulder. I mean, I just went... I just went, what the is going on here? And I remember walking away. I don't know if you've ever heard Jesus laughing at you, but I have. It was a chuckle. (laughs) And you thought nothing was really going to happen. And you thought this really wouldn't be a blessing. I let you feel it because I can bless you through anybody I please. By the way, Thanks for humbling yourself. The Lord is concerned about unity more than your pastors and teachers. Let's all remember that. As we take communion today. Now, scum, if you follow Jesus, you're welcome to come and take communion. If you don't follow Jesus... Cross your hands over your chest (laughs) and receive a blessing from the people who are passing out communion. They'll just say a quick prayer for you. That's all they'll do. But if you follow Jesus in any way, shape, or form, you can, I don't care, Catholic, Baptist, Presbyterian, nothing, denominational, whatever, you're welcome to come and take the body and blood of our Lord right now. So could I have the folks who are dispensing communion come on up, please? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would help us to remember you today as we take the body and blood. Remember the sacrifice that you were even on your way to making on Palm Sunday a couple thousand years ago. Thank you so much for following through and sacrificing for us. This is your body given for us. And this is the blood of your new covenant shed for for the forgiveness of our sins. And for that, we're grateful. And it's your name we pray. Amen.